Depression comes to all of us at times. I know personally, I suffer from depression myself and have most of my life. But if you can't seem to get out of it and you're using illegal drugs, alcohol, or other bad influences to try and escape the pain, you're not alone. Please stop and do me a favor. Call 800-831-1560. They'll show you a way out of the darkness. That's 800-831-1560. This episode is dedicated to the men and women of our armed forces and first responders. Whether you are currently serving or have served in the past, you are appreciated. It is because of your courage and sacrifice that we enjoy the freedoms and liberties we hold dear. And I, for one, appreciate every single one of you for protecting what many of us take for granted. So thank you. Stories and content in Weird Darkness can be disturbing for some listeners and is intended for mature audiences only. Parental discretion is strongly advised. One Sunday morning in April 1943, during the dark days of World War II, four teenage boys made a terrifying discovery that would baffle the police and remain a mystery for over 70 years. The boys were searching for birds' nests at Hagley Woods, a private estate near Birmingham in England's Midlands. Climbing up an ancient old witch elm tree, 15-year-old Bob Farmer saw something truly terrible. Looking down the hollowed-out trunk, Farmer noticed a strange object staring back at him from the dark interior. The teenager was horrified when he realized it was a human skull. I'm Darren Marlar, and this is Weird Darkness. Welcome, Weirdos! This is Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. If you have a dark tale for me to tell, you can share it with me at WeirdDarkness.com. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast if you've not done so already so you don't miss a single episode. Coming up in this episode of Weird Darkness… Jonathan Reed couldn't bear to be separated from his wife, so he moved into her tomb. Dr. Milton Rokic forced three men who all believed themselves to be the Messiah to live together for two years in an effort to bring them out of their irrationality. But what Rokic learned had little to do with the men themselves. A bodiless voice torments a lone beachgoer camping out. Only months after the infamous axe murders in Villisca, Iowa, the quiet farm community of Payson, Illinois was shattered by its own terrifying murder case. And was the woman found dead in a witch elm tree in wartime England a Nazi spy? We'll begin with that story. Now, bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the weird darkness. Yeah. 
Looking down into the hollow trunk of the witch elm, the boys saw a human skull. A clump of hair hung off the remaining flesh on the forehead, and two crooked teeth gaped out of the mouth. After the boys had a good look at their horrific find, they put it back in the tree and left the woods. They agreed amongst themselves not to tell anyone about their discovery. They were trespassing in those woods, poaching no less. If they told the police, they could be in big trouble. But one of the boys was so upset by what he saw, he told his father, and the police were soon called to the area. What they found inside the old tree trunk was bizarre. The skeleton of a young woman minus one of her hands. A piece of taffeta was stuffed in her mouth. Some scraps of clothes with the labels cut out. Battered shoes and a gold ring were all found in the tree with the skeleton. Nearby were the bones of the woman's hand, scattered next to the tree. The police were troubled by the unusual circumstances of the woman's death. Were sinister forces at work in Hagley Wood? Pathologist James Webster was able to determine the victim had died around 18 months previously. She was around 35 years of age, with mousy-colored hair, was 5 feet tall, had given birth in the past, and had irregular teeth. Webster could find no obvious injuries and concluded she had probably died as a result of the cloth stuffed down her throat. He also believed she had been placed in the tree shortly after death, because the space was so tight inside she would not have fit once rigor mortis had set in. From Webster's work, the police managed to create a detailed description of the woman, but nobody came forward, and a search of 3,000 missing persons cases around the country proved fruitless. A nationwide search of dental practices also drew a blank. The woman had had dental work done within a year of her death, but there was not a trace of her presence at any surgery. The flurry of press interest soon faded. The travails of the war were at the center of most people's thoughts. The area had suffered three years of Luftwaffe bombing and life was hard. As Christmas 1943 approached, people had forgotten about the strange case of the woman in the tree. Until, that is, the graffiti started. Who put Lubella down the witch elm? The first one said. Then, Hagley Wood Bella. Soon it settled on who put Bella in the witch elm. The graffiti appeared on walls throughout the West Midlands, seemingly by the same hand. Someone, it seemed, knew more than they were letting on. From then on, the woman found in the old elm at Hagley would be known as Bella, even by the police. But they were never able to find who was responsible for the graffiti and were no closer to answering its question. Was the writer of the graffiti taunting the police? Had they killed Bella or knew who had? Folklorist Margaret Murray suggested Bella may have been killed in an occult ceremony, the removal of the hand typical of a black magic execution. The theory that Bella had fallen victim to a coven of witches was popular for a while, but with the absence of any genuine leads from the police, the case eventually went cold. It wasn't until 1953 when journalist Wilfred Byford Jones started to write about the old case in the Wolverhampton Express and Star that interest was revived. Byford Jones would soon receive the first solid lead in nearly a decade. A letter, signed only Anna, 
offered new details of what had happened to Bella. According to the letter, Bella had been murdered because of her involvement with a Nazi spy ring operating in the Midlands in the early 1940s. The spy theory seemed more rooted in reality than talk of witchcraft. Hundreds of German spies were captured in Britain during the war, and the Midlands would have been a valuable source of intelligence because of its prevalence of munitions factories. Was Bella in the Witch Elm part of a Nazi spy ring? The letter from Anna of Claverly that was sent to Wilfred Byford Jones claimed Bella had died after getting involved with a World War II Nazi spy ring. It said, Finish your articles regarding the Witch Elm crime by all means. They are interesting to your readers, but you will never solve the mystery. The one person who could give the answer is now beyond the jurisdiction of the earthly courts. The affair is closed and involves no witches, black magic, or moonlight rites. Byford Jones was naturally intrigued. Whoever wrote those words clearly had first-hand knowledge of what had happened. After subsequent correspondence, Anna revealed herself to be Una Mosop and told the full story. Her husband Jack had worked at a local munitions factory in the early 1940s and had come into some money after meeting a mysterious Dutchman. Jack later admitted to Una that the Dutchman was a Nazi agent. Jack had been passing him information about local industrial sites, which in turn was passed to another agent, posing as a cabaret performer at local theaters. The Midlands had been bombarded by the Luftwaffe in the early 40s, and such information would have been invaluable for the Nazis to target their raids where they would do the most damage to Britain's war effort. One day Jack met his contact at a pub close to Hagley Wood. He was arguing with a Dutch woman. He ordered Jack drive them both out of the Clent Hills, but the argument had grown extremely violent and the Dutch agent strangled the woman in the car. Fearing for his own life, Jack helped carry the body into nearby Hagley Wood, where the pair buried it in the hollow of an old elm tree. Una's husband was apparently so traumatized by the brutal murder of Bella that he had a nervous breakdown, tormented by horrific visions of a woman's skull in a tree. Jack was institutionalized in 1941 and apparently died later that same year. The timescales fit quite well with Bella's death. The pathologist had estimated it was about 18 months prior to the body's discovery, which would have placed it in the middle of 1941. The information Una gave Byford Jones was convincing enough that the police and MI5 got involved. According to the journalist, they verified some details of Una's account, but were unable to find any of the remaining perpetrators. With the involvement of the intelligence services, some have speculated there may have been a cover-up over the investigation of the information. Just eight years after the war, details of spy rings may still have been classified. The cover-up theory was also bolstered by the curious fact that Bella's remains had gone missing, precluding any further forensic examinations. The story faded back into semi-obscurity. An occasional piece of graffiti would briefly revive interest, but there were no new leads for another 15 years, and a book about the case by historian Donald McCormick. McCormick's Murder by Witchcraft, despite its name, built upon the spy ring theory. McCormick had obtained records of German military intelligence. According to McCormick's information, a Nazi agent by the name of Lehrer was operating in the Midlands in 1941 
and he had a Dutch girlfriend living in Birmingham called Clarabella Dronkers. Was Clarabella the Bella found in the Witch Elm? Like Bella, she was about 30 years old, and like Bella, she apparently had crooked teeth. What's especially suggestive about the identification is that a real Nazi spy was captured in mid-1942 and executed at Wandsworth Prison on New Year's Eve that year. His name was Johannes Marinus Dronkers. Was Bella this Dutch spy's wife? The wedding ring found with her body lends credence to the idea. And if Bella was a foreigner, it would explain why no trace of her could be found in England. It's possible that some kind of love triangle had developed among the agents, or that Bella had grown loose-lipped and risked revealing their existence to the British authorities. Whilst the exact nature of the operation and how this tangle of names and relationships fit together remains unclear, the notion that Bella was involved in some way with a spy ring seems quite convincing. Further tidbits support the idea. There were several reports in 1940 and 1941 of the Home Guard being alerted to possible agents parachuting into the area around Clent Hill and Hagley Wood. Furthermore, a former British soldier told author Ian Topham that he saw Nazi files detailing agents that were operating in the Midlands. One operative matching Bella's description was codenamed Clara and had parachuted into the area in 1941. In recent years, newly declassified MI5 files from the war have shed some fresh light on the spy ring theory. One file details the arrest and interrogation of a Czech-born Gestapo agent named Josef Jacobs. Jacobs, who had the dubious distinction of being the last man to be executed at the Tower of London, was captured after parachuting into Cambridgeshire in 1941. Found on Jacobs' person was a photograph of a young woman. She was a cabaret singer and German movie star called Clara Bowerly. According to Jacobs, she had also been recruited by the Gestapo as a secret agent. Jacobs' information checked out. Bowerly was a German cabaret singer and, tellingly, had worked in Birmingham for several years before the war and had even developed a convincing local accent. She would have been an ideal candidate for a spy. According to Jacobs, she was due to follow him into England, although after his capture he thought it unlikely this had happened, but the timings made sense. Nothing was heard of Bowerly again after 1941, the year Bella was thought to have died. If she was not Bella in the Witch Elm, then what happened to her? It's not too much of a stretch to see how Clara Bowerly may have been remembered as Clara Bella to English audiences. Perhaps someone had even recognized her from pre-war days in Birmingham. The risk of Clara being exposed as a German in England during the middle of the war may have threatened the spy ring she'd been involved in. Could that have led to her being permanently silenced and left to haunt those dark woods at Hagley? One reason that might tend against the spy theory is the method of death. Bella was found deep in private woodland in an overgrown witch elm tree. It's hard to understand why anyone, least of all a foreign spy unfamiliar with the locale, would choose this as a burial site. How would they even know such a tree existed? There are also loose ends with the spy theory. None of the remaining members of the ring were ever found, despite extensive searches. Even today, with wartime records declassified, 
very little light has been shed on the putative spy ring. Recently discovered MI5 documents have prompted the theory that Bella may have been Yosef Jacob's girlfriend, Clara Bowerly, but this idea has some significant flaws. Pathologist James Webster listed Bella's height as 5 feet, whereas Bowerly was known to be quite a tall woman, and online databases of German musical performers list Bowerly's death as 1942, which, if accurate, would rule her out as Bella. Other less exotic theories have been suggested over the years. Bella may have been a prostitute murdered by an angry John, or a local barmaid killed by an American GI. More far-fetched was that she was a gypsy killed in an occult ritual. It's doubtful we'll ever know what really happened at Hagley Wood, but perhaps there is still someone out there, by now very old, carrying a dark secret. A few years ago, some graffiti appeared on the 200-year-old Witchbury Obelisk at Hagley Hall. In large, block capital letters, it read, Who Put Bella in the Witch Elm? Up next, Jonathan Reed couldn't bear to be separated from his wife, so he moved into her tomb. Dr. Milton Rokich forced three men who all believed themselves to be the Messiah to live together for two years in an effort to bring them out of their irrationality. And a bodiless voice torments a lone beachgoer camping out. These stories and more when Weird Darkness returns. This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you in part by the audiobook, 20 Commonly Asked Questions About Demons by Daniel C. Okapara. Demons. What are they? How do they operate? And how does one cast them out? Many years ago, famous Christian apologist C.S. Lewis said there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors. It's been decades since he said that. The church is still battling with these equal and opposite extremes. We have people who believe that demons and deliverance teachings and practices are a wish-wash emotional razzmatazz used to fleece people into an undue advantage. They believe that once we become new creatures, those old things are passed away, that demons have no more power over the believer's life, that all we need to do daily is to renew our minds and live wholly to please the Lord. On the other hand, there are those who practically live, talk, and smell demons. It's all about demons and nothing else. They believe that all of their problems in life are from demons. They spend hours binding and casting demons, running to and fro for one deliverance or the other. This book provides the right balance needed to deal with demons, overcome them, and live a victorious life. 20 Commonly Asked Questions About Demons by Daniel C. Okpara, narrated by Weird Darkness host Darren Marlar. Hear a free sample or purchase the title on the audiobooks page at WeirdDarkness.com. It's common practice to reserve a plot next to your loved one's grave in anticipation of your own death. 
but Jonathan Reed took it one step further. The retired merchant was devastated when his beloved wife, Mary E. Gold Reed, died in 1893. After Mary's internment in her father's family vault on March 19th of that year, Jonathan visited regularly, a little too often in the opinion of his father-in-law. When Mary's father died in 1895, Reed was free to visit her tomb to his heart's content. So he had her casket transferred to another vault in the Whispering Grove section of the cemetery. There he put an empty casket next to hers, a placeholder for his inevitable end. And it is here that Jonathan Reed's tale takes a surprising twist. Unable to bear being away from his wife's corpse, Jonathan moved in to Mary's mausoleum. He brought furniture and a wood stove and cheered up the place with mementos from Mary's life, her paintings, her unfinished knitting, and the family's pet parrot, which upon the death of the bird was stuffed. Jonathan even took his meals inside the crypt. As news of the devoted widower spread, visitors came by to catch a glimpse of the man who now made his home living amongst the dead. Nearly 7,000 people reportedly wandered through Evergreen's cemetery for the sole purpose of encountering Jonathan Reed. The New York Times even covered the story, explaining helpfully, Mr. Reed could never be made to believe that his wife was really dead, his explanation of her condition being that the warmth had simply left her body and that, if he kept the mausoleum warm, she would continue to sleep peacefully in the costly metallic casket in which her remains were put. According to witnesses, he carried on long conversations with his wife. The Times reported that he really believed that his wife could understand what he was saying to her. For nearly ten years, Jonathan made his happy home in Mary's tomb. Then, in May 1905, caretakers discovered his still body on the crypt's floor, his arms outstretched to the casket of his dearly departed wife. Jonathan Reed was interred next to Mary in his prepared casket, and the doors to the vault were sealed, and they remain so to this day. In 1959, three schizophrenic patients who all identified themselves as Christ were brought together at a psychiatric hospital in Ypsilanti, Michigan. The three Christs were engineered to live together for two years by psychologists Milton Rokich in an effort to break their delusions. Rokich figured that if he could introduce three men who all shared the same delusion, then perhaps they could be reasoned out of their insanity. The experiment was dramatized in the 2017 dark comedy film starring Peter Dinklage, Three Christs. But before you check out the film, listen to what happened in the real-life Three Christs of Ypsilanti. Milton Rokich heard about a random grouping of two women who both believed themselves to be the Virgin Mary at a different psychiatric hospital. One of the Marys realized that if another person claimed to be the only Virgin Mary, then surely she must be mistaken about her own identity she subsequently snapped out of her delusion. Rokich, who was already a respected psychologist when he came across this study, was inspired and thought to try it for himself. His reasoning was based on the simple biblical notion that there was only one Jesus Christ. Perhaps then, if he deliberately introduced multiple people who all believed themselves to be that one Jesus Christ, this would challenge their delusions and, in turn, break through their irrationality just as the one Mary had. 
The three Christs were Joseph Castle, Clyde Benson, and Leon Gabor. They ranged in age from their late 30s to early 70s, and the severity of their delusions varied as well. Mild-mannered 58-year-old Joseph had been institutionalized for two decades. Prior to falling to his delusions, Joseph was a writer and, though he had never been to England, claimed to be English and needed to return. 70-year-old Clyde suffered from dementia and often recalled simpler times working on a railroad and fishing. Leon, 38 years old, was committed as a boy when he commanded his mother to forsake false idols and worship him as Jesus. He was intelligent and coherent, but had been raised by an ill woman. He, of all the self-proclaimed messiahs, most resembled Jesus. Rokic first introduced the men on July 1, 1959. Although they used their given names, each made sure to also reveal himself as Jesus. It so happens that my birth certificate says that I am Dr. Domino Dominorum et Rex Raxorum Simplis Christianus Puruus Nantalus Doctor, Leon said at this introduction. That meant Lord of Lords and King of Kings, simple Christian boy psychiatrist. He then said that his birth certificate also declared him Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Joseph protested this, and Clyde joined in, resulting in a chaotic first meeting. Clyde and Joseph screamed at each other, "'Don't try to pull that on me because I will prove it to you. I'm telling you I'm God. You're not. I'm God, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Ghost.'" Leon would describe the session as mental torture. He claimed that Rokich was trying to brainwash them. Rokich assigned the men rooms next to one another and seats in the cafeteria together, as well as jobs in the laundry at the same time. He made sure that the three Christs could not get clear of each other and, consequently, were constantly forced to confront the core belief of their identity. Weeks went by, and they argued continuously. None of the men gained any ground with each other, but instead, each became more and more frustrated and frazzled. So, Rokic decided to mess with them. Rokic sent the three Christs letters. Leon's were from his newly invented wife, Madame Yeti Woman. Joseph's were from the head of the hospital. The letters started as an innocuous conversation and included such mundane things as tips to better improve their care. But when Rokic began to question the three Christs' identities in the letters, the patients broke off contact. The three Christs of Ypsilanti remained exactly that three Christs. They argued every day and sometimes came to blows. When cornered, they said the others were crazy or controlled by machines. Rokic then printed a fake article about himself in which he gave a lecture concerning his study of the three men in Ypsilanti Hospital, all believing themselves to be Jesus. Then Rokic read the letter to them. The three Christs broke down momentarily, but then regained their delusions. Rokic was reported by his students involved in the study as being not only absent but also relatively cruel. His students often came to question their own sanity when spending so much time amongst patients. Rokic also questioned his three patients severely and was hailed as confrontational by his students. He had at one point hired a beautiful research assistant to flirt with Leon in an effort to use desire as a means of pulling him out of his delusion. Leon did of course, fall in love with the assistant. But he did not give up his delusion 
and became all the more confused because it was just a tease. Leon figured this out and withdrew into himself. Truth is my friend, I have no other friends, Leon said. Rokicha's use of manipulation and illusion against the patient's delusions proved only more detrimental. As time went on, the men started to humor one another's delusions. They even became friends, defending each other against other patients. They stopped arguing and talked about mundane things and avoided the subject of Jesus entirely. With nothing much doing, Rokic prepared to end the study. Even after two years, he had accomplished next to nothing. The only difference was that Leon had changed his name to Dr. Righteous Idealized Dung. The 2017 film is based on Rokic's experiment with the doctor played by Richard Gere, of a different name, Dr. Alan Stone, and one of his three Christs, Joseph, by Peter Dinklage. But from what we've seen, the true story and the memoir that followed may prove better entertainment than the screen version. Rokic wrote a book aptly titled The Three Christs of Ypsilanti in which he claimed to have helped the three Christs and made substantial discoveries. He hadn't, of course, and many years later, in 1984, he wrote a personal exposé in which he admitted, "...while I had failed to cure the three Christs of their delusions, they had succeeded in curing mine." of my godlike delusion that I could change them by omnipotently and omnisciently arranging and rearranging their daily lives within the framework of a total institution. What Rokic failed to accomplish within his patients, overcoming their delusion, he was able to realize was a condition he suffered from himself, as he himself had been under the false belief of omnipotence while at Ypsilanti. He explained that in the intervening years, he had grown uncomfortable about the ethics of his experiment and admitted that he really had no right, even in the name of science, to play God and interfere round the clock with their daily lives. This happened 20 years ago when I was 22. It possibly involves a known ghost, the Santa Barbara Community College Lady in White, this happened a few miles north, though, of where she's usually sighted. I was a normal working-class guy, taking a break from college, being a beach bum at the time, staying in a small park just off Arroyo Borough Beach at the north end of Santa Barbara, California. I'd work and surf during the day, then hide my board in the bushes on a hillside before dark. I was having a great time and loved sleeping in my one-person tent in the grassy park just behind the bluff. I felt super relaxed and at peace with everything. Well, until the night I decided that it would be fun to sleep on the beach instead. After dark, I took my sleeping bag and headed a quarter of a mile or so north away from the beach parking lot and the Rusty Pelican restaurant at the south side of the park, which was the only building in the area. I laid down and watched the ocean for a good while. It was late and the moon was fairly bright. There was no one on the beach in any direction as far as my eyes could see, and I could see at least a hundred yards in every direction. I was laying twenty or so yards from the edge of the ocean, and the cliffs were about fifty yards away. It was a very quiet night, and I was alone with my thoughts, when suddenly I heard a woman humming directly in my ear, even though no one was there. It was a pretty and young voice, softly humming a slow, random tune. I froze and listened, kind of in a daze for a few seconds, not knowing what to think or feel. 
so I reflexively looked in all directions, still laying down. No one in sight. I would have seen a person a hundred yards away if somebody had been there. I call out a loud, friendly, hello? No answer. As the humming continued for another half minute or so, feeling exactly like a woman had her mouth a couple inches or less from my ear, my brain feverishly searched for a rational, scientific explanation. It must be some odd acoustic effect. A woman is on the cliffs above, humming, and it's being funneled directly into my ear by some freak air temperature inversion lens, right? At the time, I was deeply into Tibetan Buddhist meditation and prided myself on my deep understanding of the nature of reality and perception, or something like that. Well, as the humming continued and my mind couldn't explain it or just be at peace with it, I began to feel a quickly increasing fear. It was just too real, too close, and too weird. Before gibbering mindless panic had a chance to set in, I told myself I'd count to three, then jump up and run as fast as I could. I got out of my bag PDQ and tore down the beach back to my old campsite. A few days later, my brother came and we hung out there a couple days more. Then we left to another beach far down south. When I told him about what happened that night, he told me that he had felt an inexplicable, creepy discomfort on the beach at nighttime, and that's why he had talked me into leaving. No drugs or alcohol were involved. I know that's one of the standard jokes or criticisms of skeptics. I didn't use alcohol or drugs at all during that time in my life. After this happened to me, when I hear people mocking paranormal experiences, I just think they haven't been through it yet. When Weird Darkness returns, only months after the infamous axe murders in Villisca, Iowa, the quiet farm community of Peason, Illinois was shattered by its own terrifying murder case. This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by MyPillow. Weirdo family member Mike said, Darren, I ordered two queen-size MyPillows and these really are, in a word, luxurious. The way your head and neck just sinks ever so comfortably into the pillow, it's so soft but at the same time so supportive. But right now, you can get two premium MyPillows for one low price. Go to MyPillow.com and use the promo code WEIRD or call 800-945-7192. That's 800-945-7192 or MyPillow.com, promo code WEIRD. Have you been dreaming of writing your own book? Have you already written one? How would you like to be a published author with Dorant Publishing? They've been working with authors and publishing great books for nearly a hundred years, and your book could be next and they cover it all. They edit your text, design your book pages, create a great-looking cover for your book. Plus, as one of their authors, you'll also benefit from a custom book promotion marketing campaign, making your book available everywhere people buy books – online like Amazon, but also brick-and-mortar bookstores. Your only job is to write the book. Call Dorant's Publishing toll-free at 800-847-1362. 800-847-1362. Even if you're only curious, it's still worth making this free call to get their free author's guide to becoming a published author. Call Dorrance Publishing at 800-847-1362. Imagine, someday I might be promoting your book in my podcast. 
In the early morning hours of Sunday, September 29, 1912, brutal murders were committed in a lonely house near Payson, Illinois, a quiet farm community east of Quincy. The murders would stun the people of western Illinois, ruin the lives of the accused killer and his fiancée, and shock the Midwest. The murders in Payson occurred just months after the brutal slaying of the Moore family in Villisca, Iowa a case that was still making headlines in the region. Those murders, along with several others that I believe were committed by the same killer, had not been solved and had many wondering if the Illinois slaughter was linked to the events in Iowa. On the morning of September 30th, news reporters in Quincy were already at work fanning the flames of panic. Murdered in home, screamed the headlines, spreading the news of the previous day's events. The newspaper columns told the story of the quadruple murder of Charles Fanschmidt, 46, his wife Mathilda, 15-year-old daughter Blanche, and a young schoolteacher named Emma Campen, who boarded with the family. The bodies were discovered in the Fanschmidt home, just outside of Payson and west of Quincy, after a fire swept through the residence on Sunday morning. The police surmised that they may have been killed as early as Friday night, and the fire set the next day to destroy evidence. Telephone lines to the house had been cut, making it impossible for friends to reach them on Saturday. Neighbors spotted smoke coming from the house very early on Sunday morning and alerted the authorities. By the time they arrived, it was burning nearly out of control. The fire nearly destroyed the house, and when the metal roof was removed, the bodies of three women were found lying on blood-soaked mattresses in what would have been the upstairs bedrooms of the house. The roof had preserved the corpses well enough to reveal that the women had been bludgeoned with an axe while they were sleeping. The bodies were those of Matilda and Blanche Fanschmidt and Emma Campen, the young woman who was a schoolteacher. Another body, charred almost beyond recognition, was discovered in the ruins of the cellar. The flesh and bones of the head, arms, shoulder, upper trunk, legs, and half of the lower trunk were gone. Only one thigh remained. A doctor later testified that the body had been dismembered with knives and a saw before it was burned. It was eventually determined that the body belonged to Charles Fanschmidt. Near the body, in the cellar, was an axe head with what was later determined to be human blood baked on it from the intense heat of the flames. The handle of the axe had been completely burned away. Police officers and sheriff's deputies immediately descended on the scene gathering law enforcement personnel and armed citizens to search the countryside for the killer. Bloodhounds were brought to the scene in an effort to trace the murderer who, it was believed, had driven to the home in a buggy on Saturday night, a few hours before the fire was discovered. The Iowa murders were still fresh in everyone's minds. Newspaper reports stated that the police were seeing the degenerate who had perpetrated similar axe murders in Iowa and Colorado recently. They also noted that the crime was similar to the horror in Villisca. This new murder got the attention of the Iowa Attorney General, and he asked the Burns Detective Agency to send a man to look into it. C. W. Toby, who had worked the Villisca case for a few weeks in July and August before going on to manage the agency's Chicago office, assigned himself 
to the investigation. Before he made it to Illinois, though, authorities in Adams County had already arrested Ray Fanschmidt, 20, the only surviving offspring of the murdered couple. The young man had moved out of his family's home in August to start work on an excavation project for the Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy Railroad. He was living in a tent near the worksite. The main evidence against him was a set of buggy tracks that led away from the Fanschmidt house and which may or may not have matched his buggy, and suspicious blood-stained clothing that may have belonged to him. The clothes had been discovered by accident. J. L. Fries, who lived near the work camp, was making improvements on his property and moved an outhouse to a new location. When the structure was moved, he found a bundle of bloody clothing hidden beneath it and called the police. The khaki shirt and pants were splattered with blood, which could have been either human or animal, because the Adams County Sheriff had no way to test it, with the largest stains measuring about two inches in diameter. When the police showed the clothing to Ray's fiancée, Esther Reeder, she said that they might belong to him. This was not exactly hard evidence, but in those days, the police could arrest just about anyone, whether the evidence against them was solid or not. Soon, other information emerged. On the surface, none of it looked good for Ray. Charles Fanschmidt had owned a considerable amount of real estate, and his wife had owned large tracts of land that she had inherited from her father. Upon the deaths of the older couple, their land and money was to go to their children, meaning that Ray stood to gain a large inheritance after the murders. It was known that he had money problems. In the weeks prior to the murders, Charles received two notes from his bank, informing him that his son's accounts were overdrawn. Charles had allegedly complained to a friend about Ray's spending habits. That was all the motive that prosecutors needed to pin the crime on Ray. Detective Toby soon arrived from Chicago. He was supposed to see if he thought that the murders in Villisca and Payson were connected, and he talked to a few people and visited Ray Fanschmidt in jail. After meeting with the Burns detective, Fanschmidt hired Toby as an expert witness to testify that the murders could have been committed by the roving axe maniac who had slaughtered people in Colorado, Kansas, Illinois, and Iowa. Toby, considered an expert in the other cases, was supposed to provide an element of reasonable doubt for the defense. In the end, it worked, but it started off badly for Ray. At the initial trial in March 1913, Ray was tried and convicted for the murder of his sister. It was common practice in multiple murder cases to charge the defendant with only one death. That way, if he was exonerated, he could be tried again for another, allowing the prosecutor to skirt past the double jeopardy rule. Ray was found guilty and was headed for the gallows in October. The evidence against him was circumstantial, but Ray was perceived as being greedy and spoiled. It didn't help his prospects when his grandfather testified in court about his constant demands for money. His lawyers appealed the case, stating that a change of venue request should have been granted due to extreme prejudice against the defendant expressed by people living in the area. They argued that some of the evidence, including letters from the bank regarding overdrafts, should not have been admitted. In February 1914, Van Schmidt was granted a new trial by the Illinois Supreme Court. He was retried for the murder of his sister and found not guilty. He was then put on trial for the murder of his father, and reasonable doubt won out again. The case for the murder of his mother was dismissed, 
and the authorities didn't try to convict him again. Fanschmidt collected his inheritance and left Adam County for good. Many people strongly believed that Ray had gotten away with murder. If so, C.W. Toby helped him. For a time, the Burns detective was on the payroll of not only the state of Iowa, but was also being paid by the man he had been hired to investigate. It may have seemed like an ethical dilemma, but if Toby could have connected the case in Illinois to the case in Iowa, he would have done so. The reward fund connected to the Velisca murders alone was substantial, and Toby, along with the Burns agency, would have profited from a solution to the crime. But that was not to be. The people of Iowa had been hoping for a solution to their own murders in Illinois, but that turned out not to be the case. There was no connection between the two crimes, other than that the murders were committed with an axe. The Fanschmidt crime, while baffling, had almost none of the similarities between the earlier murders in Colorado, Kansas, Iowa, and elsewhere in Illinois. Except for one thing. It, too, was never solved. Do you have a dark tale to tell? Share your story at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. And if you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron. All patrons get commercial-free versions of Weird Darkness on weekdays, plus two exclusive bonus episodes on the weekends. And if you sign up at only $10 a month, you also get more exclusive content, such as chapters of books that I'm narrating into audiobooks as I record them, often weeks or months before they ever hit retail or online stores. I'm currently narrating Murderous Minds Volume 2 – Stories of Real-Life Murderers That Escaped the Headlines by Ryan Becker. Volume 1 of the series is now on the audiobooks page of WeirdDarkness.com for anyone to listen to. And soon I'll be narrating Suffer the Children – American Horrors, Homicides, and Hauntings by Troy Taylor. You can get more information about how to become a patron at WeirdDarkness.com. Also at WeirdDarkness.com, you can get the free mobile app, find Weird Darkness on Facebook and Twitter, join the Weirdo Facebook group, read creepy stories or watch eerie videos I find online, and more. And if you like the show, please tell your friends about it on all your social media, text, email, and any other way you connect with the outside world. You can email me at darren at weirddarkness.com. And if you'd like to send me something physical in the mail, you can find my mailing address on the Weird Darkness contact page. And while you're listening to the podcast, please take a moment to leave a rating and review. I might read your comments here in the podcast. Dennis Doom from Sweden said, Awesome. Great stories and the narrator has good cadence and a natural flair for storytelling. The production is top-notch with creepy and atmospheric background music. And then Yasmin from Australia said, Love all the way from Australia. Probably one of the best podcasts I've come across, and it's my go-to podcast every night. Wonderfully presented. Well, thank you to Dennis and Yasmin for those kind words. I appreciate it. The following stories from this episode are purported to be true, and you can find links in the show notes. Till Death Do Us Part was written by Jessica Ferry. Bella and the Witch Elm was posted at the Unredacted. The Fanschmidt Murders was written by Troy Taylor. Spirit Voice on the Beach was written by Burgraf38. And The Three Christs of Ypsilanti was written by Tyg Spearman. Music provided by Midnight Syndicate and Shadows Symphony. You can find links to both in the show notes. And now that we're coming out of the dark, 
I'll leave you with a little light. Be strong. You never know who you're inspiring. I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the Weird Darkness.